Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So this week, Daniela asked, she said, Daniela, my nine-year-old who you saw just get baptized, she said, Dad, have you heard about what happened in Texas? I said, I sure did, honey. Talking about school shootings with my nine-year-old isn't something I was prepared for. It's not something I grew up with. I mean, this is a, seems like a new thing. I mean, Columbine happened in 99 when I was in high school, but that seemed like an isolated event. I mean, I wasn't prepared for that I'd be talking with my nine-year-old daughter about something like that. And, and we talked about it, and I told her the same thing I'm going to tell. I told her the same thing I'm going to tell you this morning is I don't understand. And we won't understand. There is no logical explanation for evil that will bring any comfort to any of us. What happened is horrible and tragic. And the questions that run through all of our minds during this time is, why did this happen? How could this have been prevented? Even more for the believer, or this is what the unbelievers asking the unbeliever, I mean, the unbelievers asking the believer is, why would a God allow this? Why does God allow evil and tragedies to even take place? And I can't answer those questions for you this morning. The why questions are far above my pay grade, but thankfully, as Christians, we aren't told to understand everything that God does or allows, but rather we're told what we're supposed to do in light of the corrupt and sinful and evil world in which we live. Today's going to be a bit different. I'm just going to unpack a whole lot of scripture for you this morning, and we're just going to let God speak to us through it and and hopefully teach us all and remind us all some things. First up is 2 Timothy 3.1. Here's where we're going to start. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. The NIV NIV translates it, I think, a little bit better here. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible, terrible times in the last days. Now, the last days, I know is a a confusing statement for many of us, but it's simply this. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ and until the second coming of Jesus, all of that is considered the last days, every bit of it. So it's not that this is... From the time Jesus ascended or the resurrection until he comes back, it's all considered the last days. You see, Paul believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. In fact, he urges us as believers to live as if Jesus could come back at any moment. So this means that all of us, we should believe and understand we are living in the last days. And what does he say about these last days? They're going to be terrible There's going to be difficulties. Nowhere, this is very important, church, nowhere in the Bible does it paint this false picture of somehow the world's just going to get better and things are going to go smooth 
and everybody's going to have prosperity and joy, and we're just going to have heaven here on earth. Like Nowhere does the Bible say those things. It tells us the exact opposite, that things are going to get dark, things are going to get terrible, things are going to get hard. And he tells us why. Verse 2. It says, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends and be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. We're not going to go over each one of these, but all of this is self-centeredness. It's narcissism, the love of self, materialism, the love of money, and hedonism, the love of pleasure. That's what this is all wrapped up. It's about me, myself, and I. And the picture Paul is painting here is a picture of a people, of a community, of the world who reject God. And because we were created to love, you can't help it, you're going to do it. You're going to fall in love with something, you're going to worship something, that's because humans were designed to do that. And if we reject God, we're naturally going to seek to worship ourselves, to love ourselves. And so the problem with the world, folks, is that people don't love God. The solution for the world is for people to love God. You see, loving God, this is the amazing thing about this love. Loving God causes you to love others. Loving God causes you to love yourself as God sees you, not as you see yourself. That's a whole different thing. But love, loving God causes you to love yourself how he sees you and causes you to love other people. Loving yourself leads to this. It's all about me, myself and I, what's in it for me. How can I seek pleasure? How can I do what I want? And folks, here's the thing. There is not one policy anybody can make that can fix this. You can't policy this stuff. You can't legislate this stuff. The government cannot fix the sin problem. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And here's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't, want you, he doesn't want to manage your sin. He wants to eradicate it from your life. You say, well, how, I mean, how, can I get, how, how do I get rid of sin? By loving God. By focusing your attention and your worship to God. And out of your deep love for God, when you understand his deep love for you, you will push yourself to get, eradicate those behaviors, those things, because love is the most powerful thing on this planet. The two greatest emotions humans have are love and fear. And who are, who do we direct, who are we told to direct both of those towards? God. The most powerful things are those. So we love God. And Paul says terrible times are ahead because people reject God. It only leads to self-centered corruption. And you can't just make a rule or a policy for that. But it's not just the people out there somewhere. Paul's not done. Verse 5. He says they will act. What's that word? Uh-oh. Who's he talking to now? Yep. Those of you sitting in the pews, not the one standing up, just the one in the pews. He says, they will act religious, but they will reject, this is so big, church, they will reject the power. 
They will reject the power that could, it's available, it can, that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. This is an indictment of religious people. Those who are so concerned with religion but aren't concerned with life change. They're not concerned with what God can do in their lives, what God wants to do through their lives. They want the religious experience, but they reject the spirit of God. They reject the power of God. They reject what he wants to do in them. Don't miss this. This isn't the ungodly pagan somewhere out there. It's also an indictment of the powerless faith that fill many churches. It's not just those out there. This is the idea. This is the religion where appearances are kept up. If you're running, a, running for office, starting a new business, got to get back in church, got to get those connections going. It's where church members keep their membership at a church so they can get married or their kids can get married there, but what nothing to do with who God is. It's where formalities are more important than mission. When we worry about pews and carpets more than we worry about reaching people with the gospel, it's where we're more concerned with chandeliers than children's church. This is powerless religion. Terrible times indeed are ahead. Terrible times when the church reject the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and conform to their comforts of the culture around them. Skip into verse 10. He says, but you, you can fill in your name here. He's talking to you too. But you, Timothy, you, Brian, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith and my patience, my love and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. Endured. You know about how I was persecuted in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, but the Lord rescued me from all of it. In other words, Timothy, this stuff is coming. This is what you can expect so you don't have to be surprised when it happens. But you've seen what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have seen my teaching. You've seen my life. You've seen my purpose. You saw how I suffered for the Lord. In other words, folks, you can't be self-centered if you're suffering for someone else. Do you catch that? Self-centeredness, it's about me, myself, and I. Paul's like, you saw, I gave my life away for Jesus Christ. I gave my life away for my disciples. I gave my life away for other people. That's not self-centeredness, folks. That's otherness. That's godly focus. Paul's saying, that's, we aren't to be these self-centered, consumed about me, myself, and I. The love of God will cause me to love other people, to give myself away. He says, you've seen by what I've done. I've suffered. You've seen the persecution. You've seen what I've went through. You're like, yeah, but Paul, he's like, yeah, but I'm not done, Timothy. Let me finish. Verse 12. And yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You're like, wait, I didn't know that Bible verse was in there. Yeah, here it is. Yes, everyone, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer for the Lord. And I do not know how much clearer this can be. 
If you're striving to follow Jesus, if you're striving to be holy as he's called us to be, you will be persecuted for your faith at some level. It's always been the case. And if you're not persecuted, if you're not scoffed at, if you're not made fun of, then you're not living your faith. If people don't think you're a little bit strange for being a Christian, then you probably aren't living like a Christian because we're weird. Like, we are. We believe some, we believe God came to us, died on a bloody cross and rose again and now gives us this power to live this holy life. I mean, that's, it's kind of weird, isn't it? But it's true. That's what we believe. One author says, race car drivers should expect some crashes. Football players aren't surprised by injuries. Baseball players know the ball will hit them sometimes. And soldiers expect to be shot at. Christians should expect some degree of persecution. See, folks, every generation will have their issues and have to stand for the gospel. They will have to work together as a church to stand for some things against the culture or if the culture is pressuring them into things. You see, Paul in his day, he had to slam his own people, his own countrymen, his next door neighbors, his Sunday school teachers, his best friends. He had to slam them all for their extreme racism towards Gentiles. They didn't like it. He didn't care. He preached the gospel anyways. They tried to kill him for him saying, hey, we got to figure out how to get along. Every generation, ours included, will have to work out what the gospel looks like in our culture, in our time. We will all have the issues of the day and standing up for the truth is not going to be easy. Paul tells us that. Jesus tells us that. If you strive to live a godly life, you're gonna get made fun of. You may not get that job. You may not have that relationship. You may not have those friends. But folks, people get their heads cut off for believing in Jesus Christ. He says, you will suffer for these things. So the Christian can and should expect some degree of persecution and suffering for the faith. Verse 13, he says, but, he said, as a Christian, you can expect for it to be hard. Thanks, Paul. But evil people and imposters will flourish. Again, I like the NIV better here. He says, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to what? It's just going to get worse. Evil's going to get worse. Things are going to get worse. It's not going to get better. It's going to get harder. They're going to be deceiving and being deceived. It's just going to get tougher, Paul says. Things are going to get worse? Yeah. Yeah. The idea of bad things happening is a very much Christian understanding of the world. We know bad things happen. We know sin and evil is real. That is why Jesus Christ came to this earth, died a bloody death on a cross for our sins and offers forgiveness. He didn't just die for the upright sinners who just tell a little bit of lies, cheat on their taxes, right? Like not, not just, he died for all sinners. Like we know that evil and sin is real. That's the point of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So things are going to get worse. And a lot of that was like, Paul, well, what are we going to do with this? This isn't, this isn't very cheery. 
This is actually rather kind of depressing. And surely Paul, who's a zealot for Judaism, right? He was very zealous. He'd throw people in jail. He had people killed who didn't believe the same things he believed. Pretty rough guy, right? Sure, he's going to tell us to, to stage a revolt, right? That's what Paul's going to say. Nope, look at verse 14. He says, but you must remain what? Faithful. You must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know that they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, Timothy, stay faithful to God. Stay faithful to God's word. Even when the world around you says that the views are outdated, they're barbaric, barbaric, they don't make any sense, we have a new way, a new life, a new whatever to help fix all the problems. He says, remain faithful to the word. Church, we must be, you must be defined and directed by scripture. We're defined by scripture. That means the Bible reveals to us our true identity. It teaches us that each and every human has value. It teaches us that we were made by God for a purpose in this world. It teaches us that our identity through our belief in Jesus Christ, it teaches us that our identity is rooted and secured in him. And we cannot overstress the importance of understanding who you are because of who Jesus says you are. This means you are not an accident. You are not the uh, product of some random evolutionary chance. You're not just another animal in the animal kingdom who got lucky to have these emotions and this intellect to be able to think and act and do. Like, that's not who we are as all. We are children. We are made in the image of God, designed for his purpose and his pleasure. We are human beings. And God wants to redeem us and saves us. So we are defined by him. And then we are directed by Scripture. This means that the Bible will guide and direct our lives because we are the created and not the creator. We believe that God has revealed himself through his word to teach us how to live, to show us how to do things, what marriage looks like, what relationships look like, what friendship looks like, what worship looks like, what we do with our money, like everything. We believe the Bible reveals what it is humans are supposed to do. So we're directed and we're defined by the scripture. That's individually and corporately. We must place a high value on scripture and let it speak to us and teach us. Because he says this, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and it is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. How many of y'all like that part? Yeah, none of us, right? I know. In our lives. It corrects us when you're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I mean, that's what the scriptures are for. That's the whole point. And let's talk about this for a minute. Because some of us, for me, I grew up, next slide, I grew up, we're going to call, we're going to call over here. I grew up, and what I learned about is how to fight about the Bible, Right? This is where you use words like inerrant and infallible. These are inerrant means that the Bible cannot have a mistake. It's unable, and infallible means it's unable to be wrong. And those are two words that I heard all the time about Scripture. And when I'd hear these words and people would say the Bible's inerrant and infallible, I was like, that's right, you're a Christian. You use the right words. 
And generally, these plays come from a concern about the reliability of the Bible. They want to prove why the Bible's right about absolutely everything. And the argument goes like this. This is the argument. Argument says, if the height of Goliath is wrong, then Jesus never died for my sins. Like, if a detail's off, then the whole thing, just throw the whole thing out. And it's like, well, okay. I mean, is that, is that what we do here? Is that what we do with anything in life? See, we thought this culture, like now came up with the cancel culture. Church Christians have been doing this for a long time. Christians were the ones who started the cancel culture. I'm just letting you know. Remember Boycott Disney? I'm not going to talk about that stuff today. We'll talk about that a different day. I'm just letting you know. It's not a new thing. We've been doing it a long time. Okay. But anyways, you use words like that. And I was like, okay, I, I guess that's what you do. And then I met this guy named John. His name is John Chandler. And he invited me into this discipling relationship with him. Me and some other men, he trained us and developed us. I mean, he loved me. He poured his life into me. He guided me scripturally. He had a deep love for Jesus and his mission and the Bible. I mean, he was always using the Bible, teaching the Bible, writing books about the Bible. This man was an amazing mentor of mine. The problem was he was a liberal and probably not saved. You say, what do you mean? Well, he wouldn't use words like inerrant and infallible. And it bothered me. And so one day I asked him, I said, John, why don't you use those words inerrant and infallible? You're supposed to use them. I said, I see you believe. Now listen to what I knew about him. Check this out. I said, John, I see you believe the Bible. I see you teach the Bible. I see you strive to live out God's word. I know how important it is to you and how much you use it and love it. So why don't you just use the words, John? So what's wrong? He said something like, you know, you got a mentor when they say something like, well, isn't it strange, Brian, how people want to fight over words that the Bible never uses for itself? And I went, well, I don't like that very much, John. I don't like that very much. So I said, well, the Bible doesn't use those words, Brian. So why are you fighting, check this out, about the Bible why are you arguing with people about the Bible? Like, what are, you, what are you doing here? And see, what I learned from John, it was a life-changing moment for me, is what I learned is that he didn't want to argue with people about the Bible. He wanted to live out the Bible. He didn't want to get in debates about all this silly stuff with other Christians. He wanted to train and to disciple and reach and pour his life out for other people. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He didn't want to just sit here and argue about the Bible. And have you ever noticed that the people who argue about the Bible or a version of the Bible are usually some of the meanest people you've ever met? You're chuckling because it's true. I'll just say it. It's okay. Yeah, so we don't, I used to be there though, so I can pick on them, right? If you used to be one, you're allowed to make fun of them, right? That was me. That's what I used to do too. Just you had to say the right things. And then we have this other side over here. We'll call it doubting the Bible, we have the opposite spectrum. They approach scripture like this. They say, well, does the Bible really say? And I love having that conversation. I'm like, yeah, it does. It says it. They're like, no, I mean, but does it really? I'm like, I mean, yes. We have a lexicon. We have Greek. It's been studied for 2,000 years. Like, this isn't new stuff, folks. Like, we're pretty clear about the meaning of these words. Like, it actually does say these things. I said, it's the truth. And then they say, well, how do you know what truth is? And I go, oh, you're one of those. 
you fall in, look, this is so, this tickled me to death in my next statement, so you have to appreciate this, okay? Said, oh, you have fallen for the oldest trick in the book. It fell flat, didn't it? Y'all didn't get it? Do you remember the very first trick in the book? The Bible, Genesis, did God really say? Never mind, y'all don't appreciate it. <laughs> I don't tell you. But we can recognize this. Did God really say? Does it really say? Does it really mean? Folks, that's the very first temptation we see in the scriptures, doubting God's word, wanting it to say something it doesn't really say. And folks, we can't do this. It's one thing to struggle. It's one thing to try to understand. But generally, it comes from trying to accommodate your sin or your family member's sin. I see it all the time. Well, we want it to be okay. But yes, the Bible does say. So we don't diminish the Bible because it's offensive. Folks, the Bible is very offensive. If you don't think so, you haven't read it. It's very offensive, but we allow it to shape and transform our lives, acknowledging the truth of it. So where we want to be is not fighting about the Bible, nor do we want to just go to the Bible and question it. We want to do what Paul says to do here and how to use scripture in 2 Timothy 2.13, right here in the middle. We want to actually what? Use the Bible. Like, what do you know? Like we want to use it for its purposes. It's God's word that teaches us, guides us, teaches us what is wrong and right. So we want to recognize the power and sufficiency of it being from God. We want to recognize also it's not a science book. We don't apply the literary practices of the 21st century to a book written over thousands of years. You just don't need to do that. But we want to use it for exactly how Paul says to use it. Next verse, next slide. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true. So can we believe in truth? Yeah, the Bible claims to have truth. So there it is. That's what it says about itself. To make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when you're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. It is God uses it to prayer and equip his people to do every good work. So we allow the Bible to teach us what is true. Because if you didn't know, I'm just going to let you know. We live in a very confusing world. All of us do. And as you grow up, it gets even more confusing, doesn't it? You remember your teenage years? How do you think they feel today? Very confused. It's a very hard time to live. But so we go to the Bible, acknowledge it wants to speak to us. It wants to teach us what it's true. And we just acknowledge that each and every one of us have our own selfish desires. Like all of us are selfish. It's okay. You aren't the only one. We acknowledge that about ourselves and we go to God's word to let it speak truth into our lives. We allow it to show what's wrong in our lives. We're like, well, God says you shouldn't do this. It's like, all right, well, I probably shouldn't do it. When we ignore that, we're claiming authority over God, thinking he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I'm just letting you know it won't work out for you. You're like, yeah, but I'm just saying you're not that smart. You're not smarter than God. Like, if you didn't know that, I'm glad you're here today. You're not smarter than God. If you just reject him and you're going to chart your own course and your own path, I mean, okay. But I'm just saying, we allow it to teach us. As Christians, that's what we are, people of the book. We believe it's true and we allow it to point out what's wrong. So we can do what? Like, here's the whole purpose. Here's the whole point. To just have information? Absolutely not. God wants to prepare us and equip us, his people, to do what? Good works. He wants you to be about something. He wants you to do something. He has prepared good works in advance for you to 
do. The point of the scripture is life change. Remember the power, they want faith, but they don't want the power of God who can make them godly. You remember that? No, no. We want to be the people who acknowledge who God is and want to experience his power in our lives. We want to be prepared and equipped for his good works. And folks, if you're not trying to figure out how to live out the Bible, if you're not trying to figure out how to get your hands and your feet dirty for the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the wrong church for you. Because that's what we want to do. The gospel calls for life change. Loving God will cause life change. Rejecting God, that's a whole different thing. Look at verse 1. It says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and in Jesus Christ, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. I want to pause there real quick and remind everyone of something foundational of our faith. We believe God will judge. A person may not have their day in court here on this earth, but they will have to stand in the court of the God, the creator of the universe. Every person will be held accountable for what they've done. So just because we don't think that sometimes people get justice or family get justice here on this earth, a core thing of our faith is that God will get justice, that God will deal with that, that people aren't off the hook just because they aren't on this earth anymore. God will deal with it. So in light of God coming back and him judging, look at two, preach the word of God. So we're going to go on rotation. If you're a member, you're going to start preaching. We're going to have this. Just kidding. It says, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, encourage your people with good teaching. It says, preach the word because the problem is our world is broken the gospel, folks, is all we have to offer people. The good news of Jesus Christ, shall we preach it, so we share it, regardless of how people feel about it. Because look, what's coming, he says. He says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. You ever seen a time like that? Hmm. They will follow their own desires. Notice selfishness. Notice self-centered is the plague of everything he's fussing about. And look for teachers who would tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. So people are selfish and self-centered. And the picture that Paul's painting is almost depressing. But we have to teach, we have to preach, we have to share with people because they're going to look inward. And so it's my job is to offend absolutely everyone in here. I do a good job of that, don't I? And I'm encouraged about that. I don't want to offend everybody. Like, all of us need to be corrected. All of us need to work through that. Paul is simply describing the world we live in, isn't he? It's not a time is coming, it's that the time is here. We're living in it. This is the world we see. But here he says in verse 5, he said, and this is our charge, this is what we're going to lay in today. He says, but you should keep a clear mind. In every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. So let's go over these four things he tells us to do, and we'll close. He says, number one, keep a clear mind. You see it? Keep a clear mind. In other words, don't be stunned by what happens in the world. 
When I was working on this, I realized that we should all be shocked. I think it's a good thing when we're shocked by evil and sin, when it kind of catches us off guard. We weren't, we're not expecting it. We're surprised, right? Like that's probably a pretty good place to be, to be shocked. But we shouldn't be stunned where what happens in the world stops us from doing the things God has called us to do. Because you just read it, the world is evil, it's full of sin. The tragic events that we see unfold around us need to remind us that our faith is serious. The grim reality is the world is broken and sinful. The world isn't getting better. We thought World War II took care of that, right? That wasn't that long ago. People thought progress was happening. Then World War II happened. They're like, well, maybe not. Maybe things aren't getting better. 9-11 wasn't that long ago. Russia and Ukraine are still happening. Folks, evil is real. These things are tragic. And the Bible says these things are going to continue to happen. In fact, it's probably going to get worse. And I can't imagine how a first century Christian heard that things are going to get worse. He said, Paul, it's going to get worse than people being hung on a cross and tortured for their faith. Paul, it's going to get worse than people being burned alive for believing in Jesus. Like, it's going to get worse, Paul. See, for the Christian, we don't need to doubt our faith when tragic and horrible events happen. They reinforce our faith because it reminds us that the Bible already told us this was going to happen. That this is why Jesus came, because the world is broken, the world is sinful. So he says, keep a clear mind. Don't be stunned. Like, Keep on going. And he says, number two, don't be afraid of suffering, right? Nope, yep. Number two, don't be afraid of suffering. We are told that our faith in Jesus Christ will save us from eternal damnation. Like that is, that is a great thing. We are saved from eternal damnation because of Jesus. That is an amazing, great thing. God has rescued us from the pits of hell, but we aren't told we're gonna have an easy, breezy life. So be prepared to suffer. When we see evil in these tragedies, we start asking questions like, how can I be safe? How can I make sure that bad things don't happen to me? You can't. Suffering is part of being human. I don't like it any more than you do. But we're called to remain faithful. Number three, he says, don't be silent. He says, share the good news. So share the good news with others. Folks, we have the answers to the problems of the world. The problem is people have rejected God and, fell, and fallen deeper in love with themselves. People need to be rescued from their sin, and that can only come through Jesus Christ. We have nothing else to offer. You say, well, Brian, I mean, religion doesn't really matter, right? It's kind of good for me. It doesn't really matter for other people. I mean, I mean, come on, Christianity really can't solve the world's problems. Like, Brian, that's not, it's not plausible. We need something else. And I'm here to tell you, listen, this is very important. The message of Christianity is Jesus Christ has come in to save the world from its brokenness and the evil and sin. Yes, the whole message of our faith, I mean, it claims to be the answer to the world's problems because the world's God came and died for it. It can't get any bigger than that, can it? Like it claims to have the answers. And so we need to share the message of Jesus Christ that yes, the world's broken. Yes, it's evil, but God has come to rescue us from it. And what I hope from each and every one of us is that we don't get caught up in what's called political football Listen, 
Your political stance should not be louder than the gospel. Your political stance should not be louder than the gospel. Jesus is the only hope in the world. Christians focusing on policies and laws and what and should and shouldn't be, it's not our calling. You can go for it. If you love that stuff, go for it, but that's not our calling because the gospel is what we are asked to focus on. Salvation in Jesus Christ must be our driving point. We aren't called to be politician, politicians. We aren't called to make sure that our rights aren't infringed on. We're not called to be political And I love you enough to let me just be honest. And I don't care if you're an American and it's your right. The moment you became a Christian, you have surrendered your rights to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You said, come, I got this. Let's do this. His bloody death on the cross wasn't about your rights. We are called to surrender to the mission of Jesus Christ. Folks, the answer to the world's problems will not come from a politician. The answer to the world's problems come from the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. So don't be silent about the hope you know and the hope you have. And number four, he tells us, don't be lazy. He says, don't be lazy. Carry out the ministry you were called to do. And so I ask, what are you doing with the mission that God has given you? What are you doing with the work that he's asked you to do? How are you making and maturing disciples for Jesus Christ? What more do we need to see in the world to show of how important the local church really is? You see, ministry isn't just something you volunteer for. It's a life pursuit. It's living out the God-given calling in your life and assisting people and helping them grow in their faith to be welcomed, to be loved, to know him, to grow in him in order to do this again and again with others. And as a church, we want to equip you to live, live into that and have passion for the work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only hope of the world, folks. And he's called his people, the church, to share this message and make and mature disciples for him, to allow them to experience the life-changing message of the gospel. So he says, what do you do in light of this evil world? What do you do? He says, you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. And I hope, and I hope like Paul, you can say this at the end of your life. It's 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. He says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. He said, Timothy, I'm done. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all, that's us folks, for all, for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul said, my life has been poured out. It's your turn, Timothy. I'm out of here. It's going to get worse. I'm handing it off to you. Keep on keeping on, brother. That's what he's saying. Keep on going. I'm done. That's our calling as Christians. 
And as far as evil goes, those of you who've been around here for a while know this. As far as evil goes, never forget, God has responded to evil. He has absolutely responded to it. God responded to evil by dying a bloody death on a cross and offering forgiveness for it. It blows my mind as much as yours. But he's responded with love and forgiveness. And we wait knowing that he will judge one day. But he's waiting for all people to come to know him, to hear about him before his return. Will you pray with me?